0: Human beings are wasteful. How many of you have told your kids, don't waste that. Eat everything that's on your plate. Did you know that we throw away 40 million tons of food in the United States every year? Now I know all of you math geniuses are doing the math right now. I'll help those of you who aren't. That's 219 pounds per person, per year, that we throw out in this country. But we don't just waste food, we waste money. In 2002, the state of Missouri decided that they would vote, the legislature voted to spend $273,000 to help fight the negative effects of the goth culture on teenagers in the state of Missouri. And so they set up a task force, and they spent $141,000 putting the task force together, commissioning some studies, publicizing it, getting some materials together. And then guess what they did? They returned the other $132,000 to the state because they couldn't find any goth teenagers in Missouri. We waste food. We waste money, both very precious commodities, but sometimes we waste something that's even more important than that. Some of you are familiar when I say the name Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was a dominant and feared heavyweight boxer back in the 80s and the 90s for about 10 years. This is from an article written about his life just a short time ago says he is anything but at peace, confused and humiliated after a decadent lifestyle left him with broken relationships, shattered finances, a reputation in ruin, and a felony criminal record. The fighter cannot hide his insecurities. I'll never be happy, he says. I believe I'll probably die alone. I've been a loner all my life with all my secrets and all my pain. I'm lost. I'm really a sad, pathetic case. The divorced father of six is introspective about the opportunities he squandered over a decade, and he says, my whole life is a failure. I have wasted my life. Now, I'm not advocating that we waste food or that we waste money, but how much more terrifying to get to the end of our lives and realize that we've wasted our lives. Every one of us has this host of precious commodities, resources that are at our disposal that we have to be careful not to waste. Well, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians, and for all of you who are keeping track, that's book number... Nobody's keeping track. Book number 46. I'm keeping track. Is nobody really keeping track? Okay, 46 out of 66... That's where we are this morning, 46 out of 66. And what we have in 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had only planted a short time before. See, Paul was a traveling missionary. He didn't stay in one place. He went from place to place with sometimes one person, two people, three people. They would go into a community. If they received them, then he would stay and he would teach and he went to to Corinth with Silas and Timothy. And Acts chapter 18 tells us that they stayed there for 18 months. That doesn't seem like very long, but that was a long time for Paul. They stayed 18 months and they preached the gospel. And a bunch of people got saved and a church was planted. After 18 months, Paul decided it was time to move on. And so he went to Ephesus. We'll be looking at the book of Ephesians in a few weeks. He went to Ephesus and he was there even longer, actually, And preaching the gospel there. But while Paul was in Ephesus, we know all this. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians and you read Acts 18, while Paul was in Ephesus, he got a letter from someone in Corinth. And the letter said, we need your help. The church is falling apart. We've got got all these problems and we don't know what to do. It was a young church, of course. Paul had just been there. But there was fighting in the church. People were fighting with each other in the body. As a result, there were divisions. People were aligning themselves with different leaders. There was immorality. Divorce was rampant. It had gotten so bad that there were even people within the church that instead of settling their differences... With the help of the elders and with the truth of the scripture as their guide, they started suing each other. That's what was going on in Corinth. So Paul addresses all of these problems head on. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, clearly we don't have time to look at the whole thing today, but if you look at it, you will see that Paul's argument was this. You guys have come to Christ God has worked a miracle in your lives. Like Joe said, whenever anyone comes to Christ, it's a miracle. They were believers, and God had done all of this work, and they had experienced his grace, but they were not living like it. By the way, that can happen to us. I don't know everybody that's here this morning, but I know most of you, and I'm reasonably confident that the large percentage of you are Christ followers. And you know what it's like to reach a point in your life, you know what God has done for you, you know the change He's made, you remember what you used to be, and yet you find yourself falling back into old patterns, old habits. God has given us so much by His grace, which is, by the way, the most precious commodity in the world. Food's important. Money's important. But grace is the most important thing that we could ever receive. So Paul addresses their conduct, and then he draws their attention to what Christ has done for all of mankind. That's the passage that we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15... We're going to read a few verses there. After Paul addresses what Christ has done for the entire world, he uses his own life as an example. He says, this is what God has done for me. We're going to see that. And then what our response should be. When Paul was in the middle of rebuking them for their immorality and some of the choices that some of the people in the church had made, he said this in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. He says, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The price is grace, and that was expressed to us by Christ's shed blood. And so when Paul is writing to them, and we're going to see this in in chapter 15, when Paul is writing to them, his message to us as well is this, don't waste grace. Listen to how Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 15, Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So here's the gospel that Tom spoke about last week. I didn't tell Tom what to speak on, but this is what he chose. He talked about the gospel and here it is. Christ was died or Christ died on the cross for us. He was buried and then he rose again. That's the gospel. Christ did that for you and I. Paul says, I'm going to deliver that to you. I'm going to hand that off to you. That's what the phrase means there. This is what I have received, and I'm going to give it to you. Tom talked about that a little bit last week as well. Are we passing on what we know, what God has done for us, to other people? That's what Paul did. He was entrusted with the beautiful, precious, powerful, inclusive gospel, and he was sharing it with them. Notice what Paul adds. He adds some proofs of Christ appearing to many after he rose from the grave. Why did he do that? Is that part of the gospel? Well, it's not technically part of the gospel. You don't need to know that in order to be saved. But Paul is giving it as a proof. This really happened. This is real. The Scripture tells us that, Paul spent, or that Christ spent several weeks after he rose from the grave appearing to many. And does anybody notice, does anybody know who Cephas is? Anybody? Cephas is Peter. It was another name. It was kind of a nickname for Peter. And who did Christ appear to first? Of the apostles, we know that he appeared to Mary and the ladies at the tomb. But who was the first apostle? It was Peter. Why do you think that Christ appeared to Peter first? Do you think it was because Peter deserved it? for all of his faithfulness and all of his loyal service to Christ over three years? No. Does anybody remember what happened to Peter just before Christ died? He denied Christ. He cursed him. He turned his back on him. He ran the other way. I don't even know that guy. Christ appeared to Peter first. I want to suggest to you that it's possible that although Peter certainly didn't deserve to see Christ first, He needed it the most. That's grace. Grace is Christ giving us what we don't deserve. Peter deserved to be kicked to the curb. And by the way, so do some of you. Me too. All of us. That's what grace is. He appeared to 500 believers all at once and he appeared to all the apostles. This is what Christ has done for mankind. He shed his blood to provide salvation, to give us rescue from sin and death and eternal punishment in hell. But I want to tell you something, folks, and this is what I always think of when I think about grace and salvation. We must be careful that we don't generalize it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Oh, Christ died to save the world. God is so good to us. Look at what he's done for the whole world. He's given grace, and that is true. He has certainly done that. But salvation by grace through Jesus Christ is incredibly powerful. How? By nations? By whole people groups? No, in individuals' lives. How do groups of people come to Christ? One person comes to Christ, and God changes their lives, and they share it with someone else, and someone else comes to Christ, and he changes their lives, and eventually it gains momentum, and God does transform whole groups of people often. But don't generalize salvation. Don't generalize grace and say, well, it's out there. No, it's it's the individual It's the individual that God speaks to. It's the individual who he changes. One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy about all the stuff that's going on in our country right now is the overgeneralization of everything. Well, this whole group does this, and that whole group does this, and that whole group believes this, and that whole group is off the rails, and they all need to be shot. And I'm not kidding. People are saying those kinds of things. God is in the business of changing individual hearts and lives, my fo- my friends. Listen to what Paul says. He goes on to explain that in his own life. Verse 8. He just said he appeared to all the apostles in this group of 500. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Do you remember that from the book of Acts? Paul was on his way. He actually wasn't even known by Paul at that time. He was called Saul and he was on his way. Do you remember what he was on his way to do? He was on his way to slaughter Christians and throw them in prison. See, Paul wasn't just a good guy that didn't know Jesus. Paul was an evil person. He was a murderer, and he hated God. Last of all, as to an untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does that mean, he was untimely born? I was curious about that. I kind of thought it was always because he was several years later, after all the apostles had seen Jesus, and then Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road. But I think it might be something else. This is just my supposition, but let me tell you what I found out. Found out that the term untimely born is a medical term, it's a medical term which was used to refer to a miscarriage or an abortion. A child who was, <clears throat> excuse me, a child who was delivered too early and could not survive. Why did Paul use this term? Well, I think Paul was speaking about the hopelessness of his life without divine intervention, His was a life unable to sustain itself. You see, Paul knew at this point when he was writing 1 Corinthians 15 under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit, he looked back and he remembered the kind of person that he was on the Damascus Road. And he remembered what he was doing. And he knew if God had not saved him, his life would be destroyed his life would be wasted. When it comes down to it, the same is true of us. Often when I'm thinking about my own life, in God's intervention in my life and what he did for me and the home that he provided for me, I could have been born anywhere. I could have been born to anyone, but I was born where I was in a home with two loving parents who loved the Lord Jesus who told me what it meant to know God and what it meant to trust Christ. And I was saved. And I often think about that. And I think, if it was not for God's grace in my life, where would I be right now? at 51 almost years old. As my loving son reminds me, I'm not just 50 anymore, I'm in my 50s. Thank you, Gavin. Where would I be? I don't know. I'm serious. I don't know where I would be. But I tell you one thing, I would not be here. And that's what Paul says. If not for God's grace... Where would I be? Paul goes on in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The least, the word least means smallest or least powerful in size or dignity. And Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm totally unworthy of this salvation. Now when we think of Paul, that's not what we think of, is it? There's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. We don't even really know how many churches he planted or how many people came to Christ, how many spiritual children he had, how many spiritual grandchildren or great-grandchildren. A whole region of the world was evangelized because of Christ and he wrote half of the New Testament. And Paul says, "I am nothing. He addresses the same thing over in the book of First Timothy. And in First Timothy, you know what Paul says there? He says, I am the number one sinner in the world. We don't usually do that. When we think about where we rank, we usually try to think of all the people who are worse than us. I'm not number one. I might be in the top hundred, but, but not Paul. He said, I'm number one. You look it up in 1 Timothy. I'm the number one sinner in the whole world. This was not false modesty. Paul was not looking for attention. He was truly amazed at what God had done for him. Even though he knew he was forgiven, he had not forgotten what he had done in the past. And it reminded him, verse 10, just the first phrase, notice what Paul says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. If not for God's grace, Paul says, I I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be on some other road killing more Christians. If not for God's grace, I don't know where I would be, but I wouldn't be up here this morning teaching the Scripture to you. I would be out there somewhere, probably with a broken family, in piles of debt and an addiction of some kind wandering, waiting for my life to end. I don't know. But, but, despite his sin, despite his past, despite his guilt and shame, God saved Paul by his grace. He knew he did not deserve it. Now, folks... I hope I can say this without offending your delicate sensibilities. But if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not doing God a favor. You're not doing Him a favor. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is God showing you His favor. Listen to this verse from 1 Samuel. The Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. we have a tendency to say, this is what I'm doing to put my life together. This is what I'm doing to pull myself up by my bootstraps spiritually. I'm putting my life back together. You know what? That's not what happens. You and I are on the ash heap of sin, and our faces are in the dirt, and God picks us up by His grace. We have no ability to change our station in life or before God. We are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. You know the story of the hymn Amazing Grace, right? Some of you do, I'm sure, written by John Newton. We, read, we sing that song, and we think, what a, what a wonderful song, and it is. What wonderful truths. You know who John Newton was before he became a pastor? He was a captain of a slave ship. He enslaved people. He purchased them and delivered them to another place and sold them. And if they died along the way, so be it. He heaved them over the side into the ocean. Why do you think John Newton wrote amazing grace that saved a what? A wretch like me. We don't talk about how wretched we are, folks. I'm not saying this to drive you down into the dirt, to give you a poor self-image, but the reality is without Christ we are nothing. And we cannot save ourselves. Some of you know this story, and I won't belabor it, but my father-in-law grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, He was a young teenager when World War II started. He was smoking as a child. He was drinking before he became a teenager. He was drunk every night of his life by the time he was 15 years old. He dropped out of school in eighth grade. He went to work in a shipyard and spent his days mocking the guy who sat at the workstation next to him who read his Bible at lunch. One day the guy said, hey, Bobby, you want to come to a party? No sweeter words were ever spoken. Sure, Friday night, here's the address. It was a bit of a bait and switch. It was a Christian youth group where my father-in-law heard the gospel. He left there frustrated that he didn't get a drink, and got on the train to go home. And God broke his heart and changed him. And he spent the last 40 years of his life, 50 years of his life, preaching the gospel. And you know what his favorite thing to say was? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you know what Paul says in Titus chapter 3? He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us. When? When we started to get our act together, when we started to look better to God, when He decided He needed somebody else in the family? No. When His goodness and loving kindness appeared to us, He saved us. When we were wretches, God does the saving. It's 100% grace and 0% us. And Paul knew that. And so he went on in verse number 10 and he said, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul was motivated to love God and to serve God By remembering what he used to be and by acknowledging what he had been given. God's grace to Paul was not in vain, it was not ineffective, it was not unprofitable. Because Paul believed the gospel and he responded to it and it saved him and he kept going. He continued to obey. He continued to be sensitive to the Lord. He continued to follow his leading and working in his life. Paul knew that it didn't stop there. Notice what Paul says. I worked harder than any of them. I don't know who the them was. (laughs) I don't know if Paul was comparing himself to the other apostles or to the other people who had seen Christ risen from the grave. It doesn't matter. What Paul says is, I worked myself to the point of exhaustion. That's what the phrase says. I gave everything I had to live up to the opportunity I've been given by God's grace. then what does he say? But it wasn't me. (laughs) Even that was God's grace. You see, God's grace calls us, it saves us, it changes us, it keeps us. It's only God's grace that gives us the power to obey, the ability to obey. What is Paul saying to us by recounting his story, by bearing his soul? I don't I don't know what Paul was feeling when he was writing these words, when the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write it. I know what I'm feeling when I read it and I share it with you. But Paul is talking to his spiritual children. He's talking to the people that God had given him the responsibility of caring for, and he's saying to them, do not. Waste, grace. So, my question for you this morning is this What are you doing with what God has given you? And I am not talking about your job or your income or your home, or your resources in any other way other than the spiritual gift that He has given you by grace. You have this opportunity, you have this gift to show what God has done for you and in you. What are you doing with it? Men, God has called us to be leaders in our homes, in our families, in our churches. Thank the Lord for our wives, in our daughters, in our ladies. We couldn't do it without them, but he's called us to be the leaders, men. What are you doing in your family as a husband, as a father? What are you showing them? You must show them that nothing is more important than living in the light of what God has given you. So often we get to the point where our families grow up and they leave the house. And sometimes, and I've talked to many folks who say, why, why do they have no desire to walk with the Lord? Now, we, I know that everybody has to make their own decision. But my question to you this morning is, what are you showing them? That is the most important thing in your life, ladies, moms, wives. To you too, what are you showing your families? What are you showing your friends? If you don't have a family, what are you showing your coworkers? What are you showing your neighbors? Is the most important thing in your life? It is. It, is it your job? Your bank account, your home, your business. What is it? You're a Christ follower because God's grace found you and he lifted you up out of the dirt. And I'm a Christ follower because Christ lifted me up out of the dirt so that you would honor and glorify him, so that you would forsake everything and serve him. And it breaks my heart to see people take this for granted. A few weeks ago, Dave stood up here and talked about the missions team working on identifying an unreached people group that we can focus on in the next few years as a church. Where does the gospel need to go? Folks, there are people in countries all over this world who have never even heard of Jesus. We have everything right here. His grace toward me was not... In vain. I want to be able to say that at the end of my life. Gavin, put it on my tombstone. His grace toward me was not in vain. The beauty of the cross is what? That a sinless, perfect Savior would willingly, lovingly sacrifice everything to save my filthy soul. That's the beauty of the cross. We're going to sing it together here. My friends, there is a storm coming. And my question is, will you be ready for it? Will your family be ready for it? When somebody says, this is illegal, you can't do it anymore, what will you say? Will you stand for the truth and the gospel? Will you stand unashamed? Tom read for us last week for I am not ashamed Paul said of the gospel of Christ can I just say this if you don't stand for him right now when the fair breezes blow on a summer day you won't do it when there's a hurricane that's why we need to be here We need to challenge each other to live holy lives. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Hey, what's going on? You guys have been saved. You have grace. You have God's power. What's happening? We need to challenge each other to live holy lives, to be light in dark places, to settle our problems internally, to pursue purity, and to hold tightly to our hope that we have together. Guess how we do that? Only by grace. Father, you have been more to us than we could ever deserve. You have been patient. You have been loving. You have been kind. You have been merciful. And most importantly, you have been gracious. Forgive us for the times when we are apathetic. Forgive us for the times that we are forgetful. Forgive us for the times when we are just deliberately sinful. By your grace, I pray that this group, this body, this family, the church of Jesus Christ would stand together. That we would live by grace And we know that only happens when each and every one of us individually before you on our faces thank you for your goodness and commit ourselves to give everything that we have for the sake of the gospel. Father, may we say we are not ashamed. And I pray that we might one day say your grace to us was not in vain. Go with us now. Give us that grace for this day and the week to come. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. Have a great week.